Why struggle through a post-merger integration when you can glide through it? Why deal with the PMI integration challenges when you can overcome them even before they occur? Why move slow when you can move at pace? What are the world's leading PMI experts doing right now to achieve profit-accelerating integrations? This podcast will give you all the answers to these questions and many more. My name is Dudley Peacock and welcome to the 100 Days and Beyond podcast. Welcome everyone to another episode of 100 Days and Beyond where we speak to the people behind the scenes, the people that make things work and I believe the people that probably do 80% of the work or even 90% of the work in any integration, whether it be an acquisition integration, whether it be a systems integration, whether it be any types of integration we got. Mostly we speak to post-merger integration specialists, but there are so many facets to this. And today we have Kevin Collett, who really is a finance director who's been on the receiving end of integrations. And he's been one of those guys that make the things happen, the guys that are unsung heroes behind the scenes that generally don't do the champagne popping and the big parties at the close of the deal, but are the ones that have to carry the brunt of making things work and getting the teams working together. So we're really looking forward to today's conversation with Kevin. Kevin, thank you very much for joining us today. I'm sure that the audience will absolutely enjoy your points you're going to make, some of the golden nuggets, the takeaways, etc. But before we get going, let's first get an understanding. How how did you even come into this sort of world? How were you thrown into it? Did it happen by itself? Was it a choice? <laughs> let's hear the story. Thank you for the invite, Dudley. Wow, that was quite a build-up. So I guess going through my background, so... My career, actually, it's really half and half. So the first half of my career was working in accountancy roles in private equity and financial services. So banks, private equity investors, fund administration. And then the second half of my career was at senior finance level in generally digital marketing and software companies. So the thing is, it's like I've obviously worked for successful high growth companies and most successful high growth companies engage in some M&A and integrations and other corporate transactions or transformation projects and I've been fortunate enough to be involved in several of them I guess some of my wounds so to speak and experiences. Yeah I'm sure they will Kevin and uh, yeah thank you for that so so it's quite a broad background so I mean the the places and, and things that you've had to experience if we go into some of the nuts and bolts before we go and speak about the actual integration work to, let, one of the key questions I like to ask is is what makes a good integration? I think they're consistent amongst all projects in terms of if you at the heart of it, M&A and an M&A integration, it's a large scale project. And I think I speak for everyone when I say that the key success behind having a successful project is planning and also actually making sure you've got the capacity to do the hard work, sit back, think about how you want the structure to work, actually think, not just get involved in how you map the chart of accounts, but also sit back and think, how does this actually work going forward? My reporting on my current is actually going to be relevant and appropriate for their large business. And I think that really gives you a chance to take a step back and think about it. It's like, how am I actually delivering value as a professional to my organisation? 
you're finance director. Your dominant sort of area of expertise would be finance. Have you ever been dragged into any of the other work streams and any other areas because maybe there's a lack of capacity or resource? I mean, I would say that the benefit of having finance involved is we're one of the only functions within the organization that really does see everything. And so we see the commercial decisions, we see the staffing, contracts, the property, whereas I wouldn't expect to have and I wouldn't want to have ownership of, for example, the HR stream or the property stream. It's like I still think that the experience and insight that you can actually offer into those work streams is actually valid. And also, I mean, let's face it, when it comes down to it, everything ends up costing money at some point. And so there's always at some point finance will touch upon it. From my experience, the other workstreams I've been involved in is organisational planning, facilities and property systems and integrations, billing, which you would expect, financial reporting, actually having conversations about the staff incentive plans and how we align them and actually make sure that no one actually feels like they've missed out in the post-deal world. So yeah, as you say, the treasury finance operations, financial management, I've been the owner of three post-merger integrations. You should always be willing and able to give an opinion on how other things are actually operating. Yeah, and I imagine that because, I mean, one of the two attributes you named, the one was planning, and that's sort of having, I would imagine, a sort of a map of what you think is going to happen. And then yep. obviously there's real life. I don't know if it was, you know, Muhammad Ali, was it Mike Tyson? I don't know who said that, but your plans are only as good as in the, in the, in, until you get a punch in the face or something like I that. Think was, I think it was Mike Tyson. So that's all good to have plans. So, so plan and getting the work done. But capacity, I think, is I'm very interested in hearing a bit about that because capacity is often to do with the time allocation. So, I mean, you've got people that are ready they're really very busy with their day jobs. They're already at capacity with their day yep. jobs. I mean, I think sometimes in finance, there are certain days of the month that you are working past your capacity <laughs> to get reports and things up. Now you've got an integration, you've got a team that's already working at capacity. How do you handle capacity? And maybe just a little side note to that, because capacity is probably two points. One is, for me, capacity is the doing it's part of it. And the other one is sitting in meeting and it's sort of meetings about meetings. And if you let's just talk around those various aspects, because you're planning, you think the project is going to go in a certain direction. You're now saying, OK, in terms of capacity, can these people fulfill the plan? Tell me a little bit about some of your experiences around that. So I would say that realistically, if you're going to have a successful M&A deal and post-merger integration, everyone needs to be on board with the amount of work it is. Because as you say, it's not just a case of you turn up for a meeting and then you have a presentation, then you actually make some decisions. Most of the time, you're also having the Fable meeting where everyone on your side actually has a conversation of like, well, what's the messaging we want to do? Have we actually thought about what the structure of the organisation looks like? And I think that's really the key thing about the planning stage, where the sooner you start thinking about what the in what the combined business looks like, the easier it is in terms of when you actually start looking at staffing and when you start looking at the capacity and the recruitment and the sales pipelines and the systems integrations. And I think that's really the key thing. I'll be honest, the hours 
for quite long and you have some particularly difficult conversations with people and at times you probably will actually leave a meeting thinking that did not go as well as I hoped because maybe you've actually done that meeting on the back of three other meetings and you're not quite as prepared as you want to be and so that's where I come back to the fact of the plan is really important <clears throat> and also it's to actually get the plan sense checked as well. The other thing about the organisational design as well is we need to remember that up until the deal closes generally you're on opposition size where one company wants the purchaser wants to pay as little as possible and the acquirer wants you to pay as much as possible and so at that point I think the personal dynamics are also quite interesting because that you go from being like quite you know not adversarial but obviously on competing sides to actually then happen to work together and it's really important to actually move quickly to actually develop those relationships and to make sure that you actually build those personal connections with them as soon as possible. Yeah, to use a sports analogy, you have the the local or county or at the local level, you have sports members and then all of a sudden they get selected, let's say, for the national side. And they were fighting tooth and nail at the the last 10 (laughs) events. And this event now is they have to now play together to win a national prize. Because I think if you're thinking about M&A work and PMI or post-merger integration work, post-acquisition, you really are going up a step, aren't you? Because now it's not just the day-to-day doing of one organization. You're bringing together one, sometimes even more. Sometimes the guys go a bit crazy and bring in sequence two or three or four, and you just barely got the first one sort of settled and you're really planning for the second. And then you just heard there's a third one coming, that kind of thing. So there's all this real life stuff happening. But coming back to the capacity and the planning. So tell me about the team dynamics, because yes, there's a little bit of adversarial, but now you're getting people working together and you've got different cultures, you've got different views, you might have different systems, you've got different skill sets. How do you get people to start talking? Because you're not just doing finance. I mean, you're doing people management, you're doing change management in this process. <coughs> just your thoughts on that. So in my experience, the way, and admittedly this is pre-COVID, we actually organised a face-to-face workshop, I think a matter of weeks or days after the actual deal closed for the finance team. And at that point, it's like we got together the senior people from both sides finance teams. You sit around, you make sure that there's obviously a structure because you need to actually show people. It's like, well, this is how we do our reporting, whether it's P&L, balance sheet, cash flow. This is how we do our staff reporting, this format of profit and loss. And these are all the other reports we have actually anchored off the management reporting. But you need to also see it from both sides as well. And I think that's really important because as you say, change management, transformation, it's about the communication. And a lot of the time as well, you also need to make sure that it can't be a wholesale message from the purchaser to the acquired company said, actually, we don't really rate any of your stuff. It's like, you you need to actually go in there. You need to try and like remove most of the uncertainty. You need to actually show willingness to actually have an open mind about hey actually the way you're doing these things is actually like better different maybe better but different and actually we like how you're doing it and so maybe we'll actually adopt your approach across the whole group as well 
and really that's the key way to actually start winning over the people that have been acquired because it is it's a huge amount of uncertainty especially in the general administrative staff because most people know what's going to happen with the post-merger integration for the GNA and admin staff but at the same point whether there is actually the plan to reduce down those overheads I think it's also generally the only thing that changes with acquisition is the owner of the share capital or the contracts are there or the customers are there or the suppliers are there or the facilities are there or the employees and for most people nothing really changes from the day after the acquisition because they still need to pay people and as I said it's about the plan in terms of well obviously we do want to align our reporting we need to do the merger accounting under IFRS or US GAAP and so the plan is really important in terms of making sure you've got a timeline and you've got an acceptable timeline as well and so try not to actually do major crossover projects at like quarter end or with VAT if you're going to merge everything into a back group do it at the start of a quarter so you don't actually have random time overlaps and parallel running. I think the other thing to highlight is in the planning is in your financial projections make sure you've got a suitable allowance for retention bonuses, relocation bonuses, termination bonuses, contract closures, office closures because otherwise it's like if you don't have those within your plan then the success of your business is actually going to be starting like two or three steps back because everyone will be expecting you to deliver the revenue, the profit. And if you're there saying, we always knew that we were going to close like this office, but we haven't budgeted for it, then you need to actually find that cost out of your normal operating costs. And it's like, and that's where that's where the added stress comes from. Yeah, it's a lot of added stress because there's the thought of things like working capital, as you said, there's retention. There's ways that you have to be thinking about retaining key talent. So you might have to yep. renegotiate salaries, for instance, and there's a whole ton of things. But often in a merge, one of the first departments to, let's call it merge, is often the finance because that's often the easiest or the first step everybody starts to think about. Yeah. So the first casualties of war, if you like, <laughs> it is a war. The first casualties are often the finance people saying, but wait a minute, we got a double cost. We don't need two people to do that job. We don't need yep. three people to do that job. And so the uncertainty in terms of the people within the finance department, because they know potentially there's a target on their backs because there's tell us a bit about that tell us about the nerves and the tensions and what happens behind the scenes in terms of corridor talk and so on i mean it, it's exactly as you say and i'm sure that the conversations in the it teams and the hr teams and the facilities teams are all just the same and i think that's really where the importance of the plan comes into it and so if it turns out that at the time maybe you were actually slightly over capacity in terms of your workload versus your resourcing maybe it's actually a good thing actually having the finance team come on board as you say the majority of the time you would actually look to reduce the finance team but again the plan is that it needs to be done like not gradually but it needs to be done in a timely manner mm. because the key thing that you actually need to preserve is the fact that you can invoice your customers you can actually operate the banks and so in the post-merger integrations i've done it's always been a case of well actually 
long term we probably want to reduce down the staffing levels but that's not the case for the first year or so because at that point you're busy actually focusing on the report integration and trying to actually move accounting software and trying to actually like support HR and IT and so from that perspective finance will be I think finance is generally one of the busiest departments in any organization and so you need to do it in a measured way and what I would say though is one of the first things you should do is depending on the location of the entities you have and this is something we've done in my experience is add the new entities into your cash pool if you don't have a cash pool look at getting a cash pool because then at that point it really does make your liquidity plan much easier because mm. what you'll know for example in my experience generally i'll have a very good idea of the cash flows in and out by by week by month and i may not be exactly on but generally on week two maybe we've got some payroll taxes maybe we've got vat to pay so cash flow will go down but then the rest of it will go up and i think when you add on the additional business that you've integrated it takes your time to actually get used to it and so what you may or may not know is maybe there's all these intercompany funding happening in the other company which you need to be aware of and also maybe you're not maybe under the new control environment maybe it's not so flexible and so you just need to be aware of that and so the one thing which I think every finance person strives to avoid is a company run out of money and so a cash pool at a geographic level it really does make a lot of sense and like save some of your grey hairs to be honest by actually taking that problem away from you. Yeah I, lo- I love that so I mean you're getting into the nitty-gritty which is absolutely brilliant so yeah, so cash, running out of cash, making sure there's a, the cash flow. And then also if it's the acquired entity is a divestiture where it, it used to be owned by, let's say, a much bigger entity and they've separated <clears throat> and you're busy acquiring that. And initially when you looked at the financials, it looked reasonable in terms of money flows in and out. And then then later on, you realize that potentially those are only book entries between the parents and the, and the subsidiary. And then in terms of your planning, it's like, oops, okay, now we got to do that. So so one of the really good tips is really is to try and bring that into the cash pool, understand where and how the money is going to move. When does it come in? When does it need to go out? Uh, and, exactly. and certain things, when do they become due? The last thing you want, I imagine, and I'm just going to throw it out there, is reputational or potential reputational damage. Yeah, absolutely. And when it comes down to it, I'd say also the other thing to focus on is how does the payroll work? Because if you're looking for a way to alienate staff, it's like, paying them even a day late will I mean it will do serious reputational damage to you and it's such an obvious and crucial thing that you need to get right so when you start that post-merger integration how does the payroll work who does the payroll who signs off on it these are the things to actually really get make sure that you actually understand who has access to banks the cash pool they're the key ones generally when you when you integrate with a company it will be very much a case of you will be referring to balance sheet or financial statements from like a period of time ago. And I think it's really important where as soon as you've actually completed, ask them, you need to review the accounts payable ledger, you need to review the ledger just to make sure that you're on top of this. One of the things which I'm I'm sure the people that work with me would say I'm a bit too obsessed about is overdue AR 
balances I'm really keen that because it's such a fundamental thing because as I tell people when I do finance training the most important part of any finance first job is cash and for the majority of companies you get cash from your customers and then as soon as you get the cash from your customers that's how you pay payroll that's how you pay suppliers that's how you invest in the business we don't give too generous payment terms to our customers because these are the things which will really catch you up later on it's like the working as you say the working capital management is really important and i think the other point which you mentioned earlier is and i think this is the thing which catches out a lot of people when they're not used to doing post-merger integrations is most companies are actually sold on a cash-free debt-free basis so even if you look at their balance sheet and you think, oh, they've got like millions of euros, millions of pounds, it's going to be brilliant. And then suddenly it's like at the deal close, you're like, oh, I need to pay most of that over to people. And then suddenly at that point, the working capital really become important. And again, what you'll find is your finance team knows how you want to work and you've actually drilled them on the working capital management function, but maybe that's not been such an issue for the new business finance function. And so again, it's communication and actually setting out standards in terms of you know, we do weekly accounts receivable review meetings. How do you do your credit control? That's another thing which you should align. One of the benefits of the modern company is technology and standardization. And really they're the things that you should have within your plan as well. Yeah, yeah. And coming to technology, because that was one of the the things that have been popping up more and more recently is uh, HR people, for instance, let's say they start their careers and HR payroll is generally a, a finance function, but you get people, HR tends to get involved in payroll and, and so on. There's, there's a bit of a crossover and you have these HR people that enter a career hoping to work with people. And they end up behind a computer screen typing in endless amounts of data and doing searches and so on. And they spend most of the time as administrators of software unless actually working with people doing compliance and regulatory things and so on, HMRC reporting. Just around the HR payroll, your systems integration and and that sort of thing. The trend, uh, there's a lot of talk and then there's real life. So there's this, often there's big talk about, oh, we need to get away from things like spreadsheets and we need to get away from manual processes and so on. And then when it comes down to it, you know, you put a new system in and then you end up having to do it on spreadsheets anyway, because the new system doesn't quite cater for the way that you need to work and it doesn't quite give you all the information. So there's this nice balance there and, but there's a trend that I'm seeing and that's to, is working into sort of a shared service environment where you don't have silo-based or regional or entity-based software, where you now have a shared service implementation, if you like. Have you ever been involved in that type of thing? Or is it, have you mostly been involved in ERP takeovers, for instance, or even just integrations or reconfiguring the current ERP system? Tell us a little bit about your tech background. Uh, I, for my sins, I've actually done the project management of a ERP implementation, which I did several years ago, which, and when I say project management, I was very hands-on. I actually wrote the chart of accounts for it, and I worked very closely with the software vendor and the 
technical partner that we used in terms of mapping out how the data is actually configured and also how that then works and integrates with our operating platform that the rest of the business uses and how it also works with the HR system as well. So done that, I sponsored the implementation of Salesforce Service Cloud. I worked very closely implementing Power BI. I've used various expense management tools, which I, I really like. Some of them are really good. I mean, probably CRMs as well. And I think CRMs are really interesting, but probably one of the worst used corporate systems going. And what I would say to everyone in terms of the system strategy is if you're going to actually export the data and play around with it and reformat it and represent it and reporting it in Excel, generally I'm okay with that. But you shouldn't be making changes to that data within your Excel file because that's really where you always have the problem. It's like you need to report direct from the system. And I think when you've got that direct from the system, it means that everyone's actually using the same data. And at least at that point, it gives you a chance to actually implement or connect Power BI or Tableau or any of the other business reporting tools to actually start reporting on it. And I'm also a big fan of self-service reporting. I, I don't think finance should be the gatekeeper. And I think when I've managed quite big finance departments and obviously the volume of emails they get when it's a smaller company, you're probably getting 10 emails. When it's a bigger company, it gets more. And the state, the stage we were at when we decided to implement Salesforce Service Cloud, I think the finance team were receiving like 250 emails a day, which they're managing through a shared inbox. And all credit to them, that probably 95% of things actually went really well. But it was that 5%, and you think, oh, 5% is actually not that big. But actually, on 250 emails a day, it's like 12, 13 emails a day which are being missed and you then have the issue of either two people do the work or no person does the work and so Salesforce just worked a lot better in that respect. In, I think back onto your point about HR systems, I've assisted with the implementation of a HR system. I think various HR systems are quite good. I've never seen them integrated properly with the payroll system. It's always been a case of you need to export and then you need to actually provide a list of changes to the payroll provider. I'm a big fan of uh, outsourcing payroll. I think I I've been in finance departments where we've done in-house and I've been in finance departments where we've outsourced it. Mm. I'll be honest, I've always been much more relaxed with it being outsourced because generally you'll only have one or two people able to run payroll. And the concern is that if anything happens to those people, it's going to be you having to tell people, oh, by the way, we can't do payroll. We'll, we'll pay you, but it, there'll need to be an adjustment later on. And I think from that perspective, it's like I'd always be much happier outsourcing it. And I think when you actually then outsource payroll, at that point, you need to actually work quite closely with the payroll provider about the best way to do it. Mm. But yeah, I'll be honest, I've never seen payroll integrated with the HR system, how it really should be. There's always been a lot of manual rekeying. And what I would say is I'd be happy just being able to get a data export from a HR system, which actually captures the changes made in the month in terms of if someone joined, someone left, someone got a pay rise, just the ability to actually have an export of that rather than having to rekey it into a spreadsheet to then send it on to a payroll provider. I, I, I think that would save enormous amounts of time across the UK and the world.
<laughs> so, so when we look at the integration, post-merge integration work, then so one of your, let's call it your top tips would be to potentially look at, let's say, the entity you're acquiring does it in-house, so you might be outsourcing it. You might then say, okay, one of the work streams is really just to look at payroll yeah. and see how we can align these two. Let's call it the, the key things in the business that if they fall over, it's these are critical. I mean, things yeah, like absolutely. just paying someone on time and yeah. getting their pay slip out and making sure HMRC and all the, the standard regulatory things are done. Just getting that and just making sure that is working. That's almost yeah. sort of 101, if you like. That's like step one. Like just make sure your payroll and that is in place. Then we can do all the fancy stuff. Is that right? Would you agree with that? Yeah, absolutely. And I think the comment I made earlier about standardization <clears throat> is in your timeline, actually one of the earlier things you need to do or you should aim to do, standardize when everyone gets paid. If one company pays on the last working day of the month and the other one pays on the 28th or 27th, probably go to the earlier one because that way it only improves it for people rather than like it makes it worse for people. And I think that's really important. Actually, the standardization of the payroll cycle and the employment contracts have a view on how quickly you can actually move to people. Have you actually reviewed the notice period conventions in the companies? Because when it comes down to it, people will start talking and the last thing you really want are peers of equal rank within the company finding out that actually they're being treated quite differently. Or be paid differently. <laughs> exactly. And that is obviously a risk. And eligibility for bonuses if one company's been running like a year and but profit sharing pool, but you know, the other company doesn't do that, have you factored that into your plan? Because suddenly it's like when the company's much bigger, and obviously the plan is that one plus one equals like two and a half or three or four, a higher number, is like, have you actually factored in? It's like, should we continue with that process? Should we move to individual payroll? And I think the remuneration policy is like, it's a really critical part of it because also that's going to determine who's going to stick around in the merger, who's actually going to be upset. It's a really emotive subject because you need to pay people on time and you need to treat people fairly. And I think it's really important that as soon as possible, you understand the nuances of it in terms of on the commissions. It's like, how often do you pay salespeople? What's the basis? Is that something that's probably one of the things that you should align to sooner, because also what will then happen is, and it comes down to the fact of you standardize everyone. It's like commissions, bonuses, they encourage the behavior you want to see as an organization. And realistically, you need to roll that out as part of the culture, as part of the integration of the new business, probably within a matter of weeks. Yeah. And I'm sure there's so much consultation that's got to happen. There's especially with realigning even dates of, of payments because people have direct debits coming off their accounts, people have whatever it is, and now they have to realign a lot of things on a personal basis. So it's adding extra pressure and stress to the individuals. And then it's almost like, yeah, I told you so it's not going to work. This whole thing is a big disaster because the guys paid us late, for a, a day late. Or I always get my pay slip on the 28th. This month, I got it on the 30th. Oh, there's a problem. Fine, there's a yeah. big problem in finance. So there's We are heading for a disaster. Yeah. <laughs> it's, it's, it's the most amazing dynamic. So, yeah, so I think you're absolutely right. I want to switch gears in terms of stakeholders. 
Mm-hmm. Quickly and as a finance, I mean finance director, you've not only got you know, the staff, your team, and all that that you're working with, the acquired entity, or if you're being acquired, you've got the internal dynamic. You've got suppliers that you have to deal with because now potentially supplier contracts have to be renegotiated. You've got customer contracts. You might have to relook at a few of those in terms of the yep. profitability, etc. There might be a few customers that have been treated extremely favorably with no price increases let's say over the last five or ten years so now you've got different stakeholders but then you add another one in the mix which is potentially it's now an acquisition or a let's call it a consolidation or a tuck-in or whatever it is by a private equity firm now you've got a whole bunch of new people with a different dynamic and their big drive is not anything else but pushing EBITDA numbers, yep. that all they want to do is they want to make sure that EBITDA goes up because then yep. they can get better multiples and, and exit. And so their dynamic, or let's call it their uh, motivation, is different to your supplier, to your customer, to your internal staff. And then there's a whole bunch of other stakeholders that also have to be notified. I'm sure HMRC now have to be notified. There's pensions. There's a gazillion things that have to go. And, and also then services, as in uh, property and other property management services and cleaning and <laughs> you yep. name it. So let me, let's just go, let's paint a bit of a picture of all the moving parts that you get thrown into the middle of. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I think the, the other thing you've, I think you omitted is also where you actually have common customers, common suppliers, and then suddenly you look at the pricing and you realise, actually, you're charging this like 50% more for the same service in this entity rather than this entity. Oh, wow. Um, As you say, there's moving parts. Obviously, and I made this point before, the thing to remember is for most acquisitions, the only thing that changes is actually the shareholder. So the company, the actual legal entity doesn't change. And obviously you'll want to look into, maybe you want to move employees in due course, maybe you want to close some offices. But... There's no need to actually do that contractually, like urgently, unless there happens to be a change of control clause in the contract. And for most companies and customers, that's unlikely to be the case, I think. And so probably the way I'd look at it is you need to prioritise the people that you talk to. And the way to prioritise them is tax authorities, government authorities, because, for example, you probably want to set up a new VAT group with the new companies in it. So you can actually like just have that level of process improvement. And then it really is a case of you need to actually analyze like your customer billings and your AR, so your accounts payable ledger. And then you just need to work through them on a methodical basis based on the value of how much you spent with them over the last like 12, 18 months and whether you still use them because realistically, and th- this is thought I've had quite a lot because I've worked in companies of varying sizes. And actually, the time it takes to do a journal, whether the journal is for like £5 bank charge or 50000 prepayment, it, it's the same amount of time. And so I think that's why I'm such a big fan of, of technology. But it really is a case of the only way you can do it and the way that you will actually add value to begin with is you need to do it on a methodical basis based on the value. And so if you say that most companies, their staff expense would be the highest amount, but obviously that's going to be managed by the organisation or designed by HR, then 
if you actually remove that from your cost-based assessment, it's probably property. And hopefully in your planning, you've actually looked at the, oh, how many heads do they have? How much space do we have in our office? Or maybe we should go to their office. These are the things that actually you should actually look into. And also, when's the lease expire? Are there any resale value? Can we sublet? Are there any clause about subletting? And involve the finance senior finance team from the acquired business involved to see the senior finance people from your existing business and actually just say we've combined everything and we spend x millions of pounds a year and these are who we spend the money with and then actually just work through it on a methodical basis and for some of the IT side it is a case of you'll then have to talk with the IT director but actually highlight the IT director or the CTO and say, oh, just don't we spend X hundreds of thousands of pounds with Microsoft or with Salesforce? Can we actually focus on this, especially Salesforce and other SaaS vendors? There's quite a lot of SaaS companies that now offer SaaS licensing solutions. When was the last time we looked at that? Can we actually see if we're over-licensed? Can we actually reduce that down? It's a really quick win. It doesn't affect anyone. <clears throat> and the other thing to highlight on the IT side is, are the backups working? Do we actually have access to passwords? If people leave, what's the offboarding process? Do we actually maintain access to their records? If you read various articles about people leaving jobs and there's always these horror stories about, oh, I resigned and my manager like cancelled my email account and that email account was the only thing that had access to like all these core systems. Don't be that guy. Just don't be that guy. It's like, and, and also the way you treat people, that's what people see. And I think that's really important to emphasize. It's like, let's say it's a merger of approximate equals. Half the people know you, half the people don't know you. You don't want one of your first impressions with the half the people that don't know you is you actually someone leaving in a particularly poorly managed way. It's like everything needs to be done. It, you always need to err on the side of treating people better. As I said, if the payroll cycle, once the 27th, once the last day, move everyone to the 27th. So alliance in a positive way, unless there's a directive from somewhere else, and it's not going to make that bigger impact. It's going to make more of an impact positively towards the people that work yeah. there. Yeah, uh, uh, absolutely. And it's a point you raised where if you spend on paid on the 27th and like your mortgage or rent comes out the 28th, if you move that back by like a few days, then that's actually requiring someone to actually find a few hundred pounds, several hundred pounds, maybe two or three thousand pounds, like three days earlier. That is a way to alienate people and it, for like literally zero benefit. It's not like you're going to make like tens of thousands of pounds in interest from holding on to that cash for an extra three days. That just doesn't happen these days. You, you always need to take a step back and for communication and treating people well. Even when you decide that they're no longer part of the combined organisation, treat them well because that's what people remember. Yeah, I love that. That's another really good golden nugget there. I want to I want to ask you. So now there are a few new things that have come into play, and get your opinion. So we've got ESG, we've got sustainability, mm -hmm. we've got increased governance. 
issues. Yep. You've got much more stringent or even changing competitor laws and regulations coming in. You've got so many, so let's call it, that the, 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 there's a changing landscape. And my impression, and maybe you can enlighten me and the, and the audience a little on, sort of who carries the brunt of making sure that those things are implemented? Is it really, the, I mean, does it come down to finance to, to ensure that compliance, those sort of things? I mean, I understand that there are compliance officers and there are people in there. Who at the end of the day gets the big flack about that stuff? I mean, the easy answer is it's whoever the organisation decides is responsible. And I was say that one of the things which really determine how successful or not an organization is, is actually organizational clarity. And when I say that, it should be a case of at a very high level. And if I'm finance director or CFO, I have responsibility for all financial management and that sits with me. But below me, I should actually have someone else, a credit control manager, whatever their job title is, who actually manages that on a day to day basis. And I think probably the key thing is the points about ESG and competitive landscape changes. So I've been working since the late 90s now. I mean, I don't think the pace of change may have increased a bit, but there's always been lots of change. It's like Y2K bug, launch of the euro, launch of the single European market, GDPR. The I remember the original tech tech bubble from 2000 and the great financial crash and the last 10 years of like ultra low interest rates and now we've got inflation now we've got a really tragic war in ukraine and but before that we had the war in iraq we had the war in afghanistan and we've had terrorist attacks and there's always change and on top of that there at the macro level and at the micro level most countries change their tax regime tax rules every year we're having different focuses in terms of tax compliance the treatment of tax hay there's always been change and i think probably the key thing is whether it's me as finance director whether it's the company's general counsel whether it's the ceo you just need to know who's responsible for it and then you need to actually just make sure that topic is adequately resourced and whether that's with someone internally or whether it's with engaging specialist data protection uh, yeah I, I mean as you said lots of changes more changes come in we've got the rumors of ai we've got blockchain we've got cryptocurrency i think i saw the anniversary of like two or three days ago someone paid i think it's just pizza with like bitcoins and it was like ten dollars but obviously those bitcoins are now worth like three three or four hundred thousand dollars and it you just need to be adaptable and flexible and what i would say is you need to keep with your core principles which is from a finance perspective everyone says it's like it comes and goes the importance of cash cash is always the most important thing you do and people can say about oh all, all those things don't really make any difference it's like if you're operating cash flow if your cash flow isn't sufficient to fund your business to pay your liabilities I mean, you don't need to worry about EBITDA. <laughs> you don't need to. Your takeaway for me is, and as you're going through the experience that you've had over the last 20 to 30 years or so, what comes to mind is for post-merger integrations, post-acquisition integration work, M&A work, the pre-deal work, post-deal work, all of that, one of the keys to success is having a strong financial person 
within the team yeah, to have it. someone at the director <clears throat> level that is strong, that's experienced, that understands the moving parts. And also one of the things that have come to mind, Kevin, for me, is that you've got to keep your cool. You've got to keep a clear head when no matter what's going on around you, you've got to keep your cool. You've got to be steady Eddie, if you like, and you've got to just keep on making sure that you focus on the priorities, make sure that the planning is in place, make sure that you've got the capacity within the team. And that's where we start the conversation. And you can actually deliver on that plan as best as possible, because I'm guessing no matter what you do within the finance department, whether it's an integration project or not, you still have to plan. You still have to make sure you've got the right amount of people, the right quality, skills, et cetera, got the right relationships and so on. And you have to be fully integrated yourself with the rest of the business yep. to ensure that everybody is getting the right information. So if there's anything that maybe the audience can take, plus all the golden nuggets you've shared, is really just to have somebody strong. If you're not strong financially, get someone as part of your integration team to make sure that your deliverables are in place and that you can get the value creation that you're looking to do to get when you go out and do buy a business and you're looking to integrate with whatever you currently have. So if I think there's just one or two more things, but just if we just wrap up, we're very close to the end. If you could share, Kevin, just for us, one or two just sort of little golden takeaways that you might think of that that would be really useful to the people out there so i'm actually going to refer back to my favorite business book which is which i've read only a couple of years ago it's winning now winning later by david m co who's the former ceo of honeywell and before mm. that was that general electric you see various posts on linkedin it's like oh can you recommend a business book and i i can recommend several if anyone's interested but from my perspective i took three things from the winner now winner later book and i think most businesses would actually be run a lot better and the three things are honesty it's like is your reporting actually accurate? Are you doing gimmicks to actually try and portray things in a better way? Just be honest about your performance. Don't try and game it. Actually, just be honest. That's really the way it works. Uh, the application for intellectual rigor, when you do your projects, when you look at your project plans, when you do your planning for your integration, have you really spent enough time sitting back thinking about it? It's like, have you dedicated the right amount of time to the task at hand? And if it's a major project, that's probably two days of like focused deliberation. And then the third thing is patience. Mm. I think that's really lacking in several businesses where there's always the need to actually do now. And the example that was given in the book is they decided they needed to close like three factories. And I think in most other businesses, they would have actually probably done it in the space of like 18 months huge amounts of disruption to the supply chain, huge amount of disruption to people's lives, to the organisation. And I think he said in the end, they did it over about seven years and they closed like one a year. And because they did it in such a measured and managed fashion, there's no exceptional charges to the P&L. Everyone actually got the chance to relocate in a timely fashion. It was actually a much better experience for everyone. And I do think that if most businesses really did those three things, adhere to those three principles, I think most businesses would actually be much better off for it. 
Uh, well, that's a great takeaway. So yeah, absolutely brilliant. I love that, Kevin. Then just on the on on the personal side, I mean, you're a guy that that obviously works incredibly hard. You probably put in big hours, and so on. What do you do outside of work? Is there an outside of work? What's your? <laughs> there, 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 there is an outside of work. <clears throat> so I'm happily married. I have two uh, children of eleven and nine both my children have additional needs so I, I think that tends to put like the emergencies of accounting into perspective i watch an awful lot of televised sport i try and go to the cinema i see friends i mean this sounds like a dating advert now but i am happily married also i'm also reading a lot of books i'm already up to 11 books this year which i'm quite pleased with Wow, that's fascinating. And I think it comes through in the way you speak as well, because it's amazing. You can take, you can read a book and it's someone's life experience of 30, 40 years, and it's in 300 pages or whatever the size of the book is. And you could glean such a lot of good, useful information just by reading. And then I think that's a fantastic trait. And then also from a family point of view, it's a balanced life, et cetera. So it is possible. You don't have to be completely out of balance and so on, which is great to, to see. Kevin, so just on, on the last point is if anybody would like to get hold of you, if they want to say, want to have a conversation with you, how would they do that? How would they get hold of you? So I am a fanatical user of LinkedIn, which is actually how we connected as well. Yeah. Uh, I mean, if you'd like to get hold of me, direct message through LinkedIn. I think I'm quite approachable, but obviously if you owe my company money, I'm less approachable. Uh, <laughs> but yeah, I, I would say the easiest way is you can find me on LinkedIn. I'll be one of the first Kevin Colts you find. I have like 7,000 connections already. So okay. yeah, uh, I mean, and I, I'm genuinely interested in most things. And I think that's probably the hardest thing about modern life is actually trying to actually consume as much content that as that is available. I, we live in a time where it's not actually access to concert to content, which is the issue, is actually finding the time to consume it. Yeah, it, and it's, that's also about focus and again, capacity, as we spoke about, and being able to plan your days, your weeks, your months, that you can balance it as well, which I think is part of your philosophy. If I remember the early part of our conversation, what are the two main attributes? I want to bring it back to that where <laughs> planning and capacity and I think you hit the nail on the head there so Kevin thank you that was a fascinating interview I'm sure the our listeners will absolutely enjoy that I hope you could come join us again and sometime in the future in, in a follow-up episode maybe you've had a few new adventures along the way yep. and come and share it with us uh, be yeah happy to. and thank you very much and have a super rest of the evening and the weekend, we're going into weekend now, so that's yeah. also great. Yeah. So, Kevin, thank you. Much appreciate. Thank you so much. And, thank uh, you. And, and yeah, and what a wonderful story you had. So, thanks, everyone. We just had Kevin Collett, who's a financial director on our regular podcast, 100 Days and Beyond. We want to thank you for joining us today. And if you would like to find out more, please click on the link below and go to any one of the previous uh, episodes or you could get hold of us and we'll have an interview with you if you'd love to share some information and insights around post-merger integration work. Thank you for that. Bye-bye. Hi everybody, this is Dudley again and if you need help with a future or existing post-merger integration, I want to invite you to arrange a free no-obligation meeting with us. During the meeting, we'll find out exactly what you need, what your challenges are 
and we'll explain how our unique PMI slipstream method can help you. Simply call us or visit mergerintegration.co.uk that's mergerintegration.co.uk or come to our website skillfulpursuit.com.